Welcome to Clothes Horse, the podcast that really does love to ride a bike past your house. <laughs> You'll understand why I said that in a few minutes. And I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 129. We're in the midst of a surprise, even to me, mini-series about circularity and how it relates to fashion and really every object in our lives. Don't get me started on how a circular economy could change the world. Okay, I'll definitely be talking about that in the next episode. Don't you worry. Today's guest is Jessica, a designer, a pattern maker, an educator, a consultant, and a dreamer. She has so much experience in a variety of different areas of the fashion industry, but the primary focus of our conversation today will be the textile recycling industry. We'll also be talking about all the ways the industry has changed just in the span of our careers, including sample waste and diminished quality. Uh, Diminished quality. A thousand million bummers right there, right? (laughs) Anyway, we're going to be talking about all that, and we're going to be talking about so much more. When Jessica and I recorded this conversation, I was in the early days of COVID, and I became much sicker a few days later. So I I didn't really remember our conversation super well because a few days of fever made everything a blur. It's still kind of a blur. But re-listening to it as I was editing it just made me so happy. So I can't wait for you to meet her. Okay, get ready for an abrupt transition in topic. Here it is. It's happening right now. When I was 27 years old, I met a person that impressed me so much. I I couldn't stop thinking about him. And I know as I say that, you're hearing it and you're nodding your head because you've had a similar experience. And for me, it was it was all consuming. And it, you know what? It was I didn't know this at the time completely, but I had an inkling of it. It was a weird time for me emotionally. I see that in retrospect very clearly, but at the time, I only knew it a little bit. It was just four years after my partner had died, a mere four years after my entire life had turned upside down and changed in every possible way. So so my heart, my ability to feel that kind of romantic love and excitement It just hadn't even come close to feeling anything other than grief for years. I've been going through the motions of working, of being a parent and making friends and pretending to be just fine for years. But the entire time, I expected to look down and see a gaping wound in my chest. I hadn't felt good about very much for a very long time. And my friends... I have to tell you, this was an unusual state for me because I was born with a whole lot of romantic notions and a great general lust for life and people. This was different. This person's name was Brian Eastwood. And I'm going to go ahead and just say that full name to all of you because I doubt he will ever listen to Clothes Horse. Although if, if he is right now, hi, hi, Brian. Um, I'm glad you're still posting a lot of cute animal pictures on Instagram. Anyway, you'll never find him on social media. And if you know him, congratulations, you're a very lucky person. 
then you probably also know me from Portland and you already know how obsessed with him I was. And it's important that I use his full name because that's how he's always been filed away in my brain. Never Brian, always Brian Eastwood. So yeah, I was obsessed. I met him at a bar. He was friends with my best friend Raina's boyfriend. He teased me for carrying fruit in my purse. And as we all biked over to his house, he was tossing tiny fireworks along the way, which was both, you know, appalling and also adorable to me. It's hard to explain all of the reasons I liked him. It's not just because he teased me about carrying fruit in my purse, which when I say it out loud is kind of a teasable tease-worthy behavior. But yes, there were so many reasons, so many. And it is hard to explain all the reasons I liked him, mostly because this podcast does surprisingly have a little bit of a time limit, not because I've forgotten them. He had a nice house. We had all of the same records. His cat was named Choco Cat, which is a Sanrio character. He loved tuna melts, me too, and cookbooks. Of course I do. See, you're all thinking, okay, I see why you liked him. I mean, he intentionally misspelled items on his own shopping list in the most ridiculous way for his own amusement. That's adorable, right? The admiration was mutual. But you know what? Things made it complicated. He was a lot older than me. I didn't care. I had a kid, although he never said anything negative about it. It made me feel nervous about getting serious with him, with anyone, really. And you know what? I was still grieving, and my feelings were chaotic, to say the least. His friends tried to sleep with me. We were off and on in a way that honestly makes me sad even now, because he was the first man I had ever met that felt like an intellectual equal to me, that felt sensitive and sweet in the right ways, but also was super funny. We had this weird thing of showing up separately at events in unplanned matching outfits, and people noticed it. But as I mentioned, things were messy for no reason and all the reasons, and yet I couldn't get him out of my head or my heart. We lived about 10 blocks from one another, and I engineered every single bike ride to work, to run errands, to meet friends, to pick up from daycare, every single bike ride that involved passing through Southeast Portland was mapped by his house. So sometimes I was pedaling past his house two, three, four times a day, not because I wanted to see him. I just wanted to see that he still existed. And so he became a part of my life routine. There was so much comfort in all of it. Those bike rides, there was thinking about him whenever I wasn't working or taking care of Dylan or drawing or writing. He was always in my thoughts. Biking by his house was just second nature. It was just part of what it was to live my life. He was just part of my life. When I moved to the other side of the country and could no longer bike by his house every day, you would think that was the end of it, but instead, we doubled down. We started texting more regularly. I hung out with him every time I was in town. I really wanted to make something happen with him, but I was always too cowardly. 
too afraid of things going sideways and maybe too afraid of changing my life. Because were I to pursue that, a lot of things would have to change. This went on for years, years, my friends, a decade. Every time I would see him or hear about him for all of those years, my stomach would just filled with butterflies. The longing, I can feel it. I can remember it. It was this feeling that rose up my throat and back through my head and sort of encircled my brain and just squeezed on it. It was excruciating. Even when I was dating someone else who I super was into or moving to a new city or just really busy with the act of living life, as as happens to all of us, Brian Eastwood was still the fantasy world my brain visited in boring work meetings on transatlantic flights when I was in bed with a cold or driving on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. I can assure you that I was still there Mentally, long after everyone, even Brian himself, had assumed that I'd moved on. Brian Eastwood was woven into the fabric of my everyday existence. He was part of all of the routines and patterns. After so many years of operating this way, the habit was so deeply ingrained that it no longer felt like a habit. It was just how my life was. It never even occurred to me that it might be unhealthy, probably was, a waste of my time, definitely was. A lot of years right there doing the same thing over and over again, even though maybe it took a different form because I couldn't really live in LA and ride my bike past his house in Portland, right? But then something happened. Something major, something that all of you already know happened. I met Dustin. He was kind. He loved animals. I don't know why I'm using past tense here. These things are all true. He loved me. He loves me. He was and is my intellectual equal. He felt like family almost instantly. And in so many ways, he is my best friend and my partner in almost everything I do. When Dustin proposed to me, That's a funny and sweet story in itself for another time. The first thing I thought was not, oh my God, planning a wedding is stressful or monogamy is scary. It was, well, I I guess Brian Eastwood will never be my boyfriend now. And you know what? That was a weird mental shift to accept because no matter what was going on in my life, That was still happening in my mind every day. This pattern, this mental routine had lived with me for years and years, and now it had to end. I had to reroute my brain's thinking habits, if that makes any sense. I mean, it was conscious work, even though I was really excited about everything else that was happening in my life and super in love with Dustin and in love with my life, you know, it was, it was still hard. It was a big change. It was a scary change. It was accepting a big change. It's not easy to change your habits, whether it's your decade long crush on someone who shares all of your favorite books or 
the relationship you have with stuff in your life. Changing your go-to behaviors and thought patterns is both terrifying and pretty excruciating. And furthermore, knowing that you must change, it's scary. I couldn't I couldn't keep thinking about Brian Eastwood if I wanted to have a good marriage. There was no way I could set myself up for success without changing my behaviors. And this is sad to say, but ultimately for years, I had been letting myself live with this thing that was probably never going to become real. You know? (sighs) Even when you know you have to do it, change is still really, really hard. And we're on a place right now where we must accept that larger change in the world is going to involve change in our own patterns and behaviors. Scary, right? And sure, Amazon does have a bigger impact on the planet and its people than we do as individuals, as singular people. But is its impact still larger than all of us working together in unison? No, my friends, we have built Amazon.com, and we can also dismantle it. The same goes for all of the other constructs in our lives that were created by all of us working together at the same time, whether it's fast fashion or shopping at Amazon or a million other constructs that exist in our life right now. Major change will happen if we make a lot of personal changes together that become cultural changes. Let's think about them. No longer shopping when you're sad. When we shop when we're sad and tell other people to shop when they're sad, we just get more people shopping when they're sad. Giving up shopping as a hobby and a social activity, I mean, come on, think of all the other things we could do together. We could all like get really good at playing different instruments or work on our spelling or learn advanced mathematics or grow amazing gardens. I mean, I could go on and on. Imagine if we were all doing that at once, how our society would change. Learning how to mend clothing rather than tossing it out. It sounds like such a simple thing, but wow, it's a big one. Realizing that making better choices will require a bit more time, thought, and effort. And accepting that as the normal timeline for bringing new things into our lives. We're going to skip out on a new iPhone every year. We're going to keep those shoes just a little bit longer. We're going to wear the same dress or suit or whatever. What are you wearing? A jumpsuit, a onesie? I don't care. Whatever it is, you're going to wear it to every wedding and holiday. This is just the beginning of the process, but getting the people around us to make these changes alongside us will have a major impact. I guess what I'm doing right now is giving you and myself a pep talk because the past few weeks have been really, really hard. Just so much sad and bad news all around us. At times, I have felt as if I was living in the worst timeline with COVID as an added bonus, and I wondered how I could escape this timeline. I felt so trapped in a world where I could not make it better. 
hard to keep up the fight for something better when it feels as if everything is collapsing around you. When it seems as if the badness in the world is just so much larger than you could ever be. Bad and tragic don't have to win. They will not win. As long as we're standing together, doing what is right, reaching out to others to help them do what is right, we will see things get better. We cannot give up. We cannot surrender to the comfort of apathy. Isn't being apathetic just like riding your bike by someone's house three or four times a day just because it feels good? But doesn't what does it do? It doesn't make anything better except maybe you get stronger calves. I don't think you get stronger calves, stronger thighs. It was it was a flat. The, my bike ride was pretty flat. Anyway, I'm so grateful for this community, all of you who push me to do better and better. It's important to me, even if I'm not biking past your house every day, I don't have time for that, okay? Believe it or not, next month is Close Horses' two-year anniversary, and I have a special audio essay opportunity planned for it. It's for all of you. I'll be sharing that info after my conversation with Jessica. So let's jump right in. All right, Jessica, why don't you introduce yourself to everyone? Hi, I am Jessica, and I am a kind of an everything in the fashion industry. I am a designer, pattern maker, tech designer, educator, 2D, 3D, CAD, manufacturer, fit expert, um, a <laughs> reconstructionist, <laughs> a consultant, um, e-commerce, um, everything, you name it, I've done it, stylist. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I kind of grew up in this industry. So, um, and then currently I am working as um, I'm back in tech design, but I'm also, I do work on my own projects under Jessitex. Okay. Um, and it's more independent. Um, so I, I kind of have my, I kind of can't, I kind of keep it secret, I guess, like when I, when I'm working on stuff, um, until I launch it. So, <laughs> but yeah, I'm mostly, I mostly do a lot of like reconstruction work as well as, um, my own stuff on the side, but I work in the industry. Cool. So, you reached out to me today. We're mostly going to talk about the textile recycling system, but I thought we could start by just talking because you've been in this for a long time, as have I. And I always like to talk to people who've been in the industry for a while about how they've seen it change over their career. Because I, I mean, I talk about this a lot on the show. I have seen it change so much. Yes, I have seen it change. Um, I would say drastically um, <laughs> yeah I agree I agree and it feels like like I don't know about you but when I look back it's hard for me to pinpoint that exact moment when it changed and I can't decide if it happened gradually but extremely over the years or it just like took me a while to notice I think for me I, I think because I grew up in it um mm -hmm. I can there's almost a mo there are moments I can pinpoint it and then there are times where I feel like 
it was gradual, but then there are definitely turning points. Um, because my, my family, I mean, I was exposed to it from birth. So both mm-hmm. sides of my family, both of my parents, um, uh, sides in the family worked in apparel, um, in, in some mm. capacity, but my, my, the main one that I was exposed to was my mom's side. My mom's from England and her, her family, my grandparents, my grandfather actually had a textile. And this is really interesting because they were in Manchester and Manchester in England was known for, for being like a textile hub and for mm-hmm. importing and exporting textiles. And what my grandfather essentially did was he imported and exported odd lots. So basically what we call dead stock now. Mm, um, interesting. But it wasn't... But what what we're, what we refer to as dead stock and the way we treat textile that kind of business now was very different then and so I was around mm-hmm. it um, then uh, I'm gonna age myself now but <laughs> but that <laughs> was um, a long t- I'm about to have a birthday so so this is a long time ago but um, but. That was um, before the whole textile business kind of moved to Asia. And, and so there were, and overseas, like even further overseas. And so um, none of these businesses are left in Manchester now. I think one of my great uncles had like one of the last ones. <laughs> um, he held on <laughs> to it. And so to see that business change, that kind of dead stock, like odd lot, um, importing and exporting of textiles and how that, you know, the amount of fabric that there was versus now is extremely mm-hmm. different. Um, and also the quality. Oh my God. So That's where different. I, what I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like even, you know, I've talked about this. I may have talked about this on the show in the past. I'm not really sure, but I'll go back in my mind to like the late nineties. And I'll think about like, say, I don't know, like, whether it's express or like contempo casual, like we're not talking like luxury brands or even like mid range brands. And like the quality Mm -hmm. was so much better. So much, so much better. Or even take some like for, here's another example of someone who's been around this entire time, Victoria's secret. Mm -hmm. Like if you find Victoria's secret from the eighties or the nineties, it's so nice. And it has held up and it looks, the fabric is amazing. It's the true. weight is good and the finishing. And now it's like, ugh. Yeah. You know? It's so different. And and so I different. think that, that was what was so interesting for me is because I grew up around the actual, like around textile as opposed to just the apparel. And so mm-hmm. I was, I, I would see like the, the actual fabric um, and the quality of the fabric as well as yarn. And because two of my great uncles had yarn businesses. And so um, and so the quality was just so it was so much better. And so even what you were getting as like the odd lots, like I remember my grandfather even got like a once he bought like this odd lot of like Pierre Cardin underwear that <laughs> that I think like couldn't <laughs> I think they fit it wrong. I mean I was very young at the time. I think they fit it wrong or something and so they couldn't sell it. But just the quality of the underwear <laughs> that they couldn't sell was 20 million times better <laughs> than the quality <laughs> that you would get now. Um and and you know it, it's really interesting um 
you know, to, to see it from that perspective. So, so just that has changed. And then when I started working in the fashion industry, I got into, um, I got, I mean, I got into, to school very young. I went to Pratt Institute in New York and I started, I got in when I was 16. And so I started working in the fashion industry as soon as I got there. And I worked for, I think my first job was for a knockoff company. So they, they didn't call it fast fashion back then. It was called, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, the knockoff company. <laughs> yeah, totally. you just worked for a knockoff company and you had like a company credit card and you went to, mm. um, you know, you went to like, you know, higher end stores, bought their clothes, took it back to the showroom, knocked it off and <laughs> and made it change the details. And then you'd return the clothes on the company credit card. I mean, it, it, that was like the knockoff. Oh, my job. gosh. That's the funniest <laughs> part. Um, it's funny. I mean, we've talked about this here before, but it's just something that never and I've actually been a part of this, like working in the fast fashion industry that like we forget about Like there was a time definitely early in my career where if we were, you know, I worked for a company that would not have called themselves fast fashion <laughs> was, and they were a knockoff company on top of all that. So we would like go to L.A. or Europe or even, you know, New York and we would go around and buy samples, you know, buy things from like nicer stores like I remember buying this like scarf at Marc Jacobs right and to take it back and copy it and that's exactly what you're doing (laughs) but then somewhere along the line it was like now we'll just go to H&M and buy something and copy it you know like it got it got shittier you're knocking off the knockoffs (laughs) yeah super depressing um but like that has been like that culture has just been a part of the DNA of the fashion industry for so Forever. long. That's like one thing that didn't change, except that like the clothes got crappy. But, crappier but it has it has changed because it used to be. Because do you remember? I mean, in the fat in fashion shows, you used to have. So the knockoff companies, you used to go to fashion shows and you used to sit and you would sketch and you would knock off from the higher end designers. So the lower end companies would knock off from higher end designers. Mm-hmm. And it was just like and part of exactly, it. Exactly. Like, like because mo- because you know you have a I mean most of America is shopping knockoff. And so right. that's how you would but so you knock off the higher end. But now this is where the big change is. Now you're literally knocking off the lowest end. So you're knocking off the knockoff. <laughs> <laughs> and you never had, you didn't have that before. You were knocking off the high end in order to make it accessible to the people that couldn't afford the high. And so it, it that has definitely changed a little bit. Um, but the interesting part is the samples that you would get back. And so I've been part of the sample making process for a long time and Oh my God. I mean, this is where I've noticed (laughs) (laughs) the biggest difference in, I mean, it's, it's in sample making. And, and of course I've worked in, I work in technology too. I have a a long history of technology and manufacturing and I, I can definitely attribute it to that. Um, Mm -hmm. but the samples, remember all, I mean, you could have, you had sample sales and the samples in the sales were so like, they were great. They were the same quality as the clothes you get in the store. They were they were fine. Like they'd mm-hmm, fit well. Mm-hmm. They were desirable yes, for sure. Like the quality yeah. was great. The fit was good. Now you cannot 
remotely sell your samples. I mean, these samples oh, are, good sh- Lord, are no. terrible. I mean, I don't know if I can curse on here, but I was about to say. You can, you yeah. can, you can. <laughs> I mean, I would say, like, I noticed that, too, that, like, even now when brands say they're having a sample sale, I'm like, no. (laughs) You're having a sale on inventory you couldn't sell. Like, I know those aren't samples. They are not. Because you have whole size runs times 10, you know? It's so scam. I mean, it's just, like, one scam after another. But it's true. The samples are bad. They're terrible. Like, I... (laughs) <laughs> like, I can't tell you enough, like, the disappointment you get when your first or second sample arrives, how horrible it is, and how if you're going to make it work, you're going to cut it all apart yeah. and try to fix it, and then it's not wearable anyway. Like, it, it's the most depressing thing when you open the box with the sample, always. You're like, what? <laughs> How'd you get that from what we sent you? Yeah, it is, yeah. It is a horrible um, process. It's almost like... It's almost like they just try to like put something together within two minutes just to appease you. Um, but really, <laughs> really, it's just I think the process is so fast and they're up against it with, you know, the companies are so demanding. And, and mm-hmm. you know, we used to have the delivery dates have changed and it used to be seasonally. There used to be two seasons. Now you don't even you barely have seasons. You just have like these delivery dates i mean it's just you know yeah that's all it is it's totally true i mean it is it's uh i always like as on the buying side i like i take it personally when the sample shows up and it's bad and i'm like (laughs) oh what do you think i'm like stupid you think i would buy this you think i would think this is good but i think you're right it's also like i hope that they aren't like oh this this will work because they like i've literally gotten samples that are glued together Uh, (laughs) right (laughs) I got something once that I, I to this day, am convinced was made out of a trash bag. <laughs> I don't even mean that as, like, an insult. No, I mean, literally, literally, it was made yeah, out of a trash bag. Literally. And, yeah, I mean, and so, like, the samples are so bad now. They're so bad. That you find yourself going through four, five, six samples yeah, back and minimum. forth. And they're all trash. Yeah. You can't they resell go in the them. trash. You cannot resell yeah. them. You can't salvage them. Nobody's going to buy them. And and the thing that's so I mean I I mean when you when you get them and you're like you're looking at it and you're like this is this is depressing and you want and you're trying to tell people and you're like we you cannot you're, you're like this is shocking. Why is you know why? Why <laughs> it is shocking. shocking? Like why is why is the underwear sewn backwards in this? And why is the you know why is this coming in like where one leg is lower than another leg? I mean these are these are mistakes that just should not happen. It's almost you know it's again it's shocking, and then people just disregard it where they're just like, oh, but don't worry. It's just the proto. It's fine. It's just... But oh, my God, just the proto? I've heard so many times. But then I'm like, if this were a better sample, we maybe wouldn't have to go to third or fourth right. sample and then, on it. You know what I mean? And then what are you going to do? It's like, it, it's not like d- this disposable res- thing. It's not something that you can just throw away. And then, you know, you cannot even sell this in a sample sale. So it automatically becomes like garbage. And when Mm -hmm. it's not, because, because textile is, it's like one of the most recyclable materials. And, um, Mm -hmm. but we treat it like 
garbage. Like we'll just throw it in the trash. And so that, that is insanity um, to kind of, you know, make something out of, out of a material that is incredibly recyclable, but you have, you're just treating it like it's, you know, like it's garbage. Um, and that, that is, that has always stuck with me. And I think, you know, because I grew up kind of within a textile warehouse, um, but a different type of textile warehouse mentality, because, you know, I'm an 80s baby, but (laughs) so, um, the, the industry was different. Um, and then also my grandmother taught me how to mend when I was also very, very young. And so I knew how to alter and how to hand send and stitch. And so I, I started sewing very young too and, and altering. And I would watch her and her and how she treated her clothes with value. And if mm-hmm. something broke on a garment or something was wrong with, with something, you know, her, her clothing, she had, um, you know, she had created her own sewing kit and she basically, she would mend it. She wouldn't throw it in the garbage. (laughs) It wouldn't go away. And so, um, I kind of, I think because of these two components very early on in my life, I kind of applied that like through my career. And so as I was seeing all these things change, and then as I was more heavily involved, especially in the technology aspect of manufacturing and watch, and I thought, okay, this is very cool. We can do all these things um, that can better, um, which technology is a double-ended sword, I think. Um, we can better the manufacturing process, but it's also hurt, hurting the manufacturing process because people need to realize technology is a tool um, mm-hmm. and not the control. So you can use technology to, to technically control the waste as opposed to create the waste. And Mm -hmm. I think what's happening is people are using it to kind of create, you know, to speed up the manufacturing process, create more and more and more. But in reality, you can use the same technology to eliminate waste by um, creating less samples. <laughs> I mean, the the samples not only do they generate more waste, they increase the cost ultimately because making one sample is way more expensive than like per unit, correct? Than an entire production unit, and it slows the process down. I can't tell you how many times in my life an order has been late because the first sample sample was a horrible disaster. The second sample was still pretty terrible. terrible. The third <laughs> sample was still bad. And we were at fourth <laughs> or fifth sample fitting. And suddenly we're airing it in, right? Mm-hmm. When it could have come on a boat. So that's costing us more money. It's, it's you know, exponentially increasing the carbon yes. footprint of that shipment. Then we pass a point where even airing it in isn't going to get it in on time. Yes. So we're still taking the order a month or two late, still paying to air it in. It doesn't arrive with everything else it was supposed to live with, so it doesn't get that marketing push. And you know what happens? No one buys it. Exactly. Because it's like <laughs> on its own, floating around on the sales floor or on the website. Like these, all of this foolishness, it leads yeah. to, it generates more waste in so many different areas yeah. down the road. And it all comes from like, we're overburdening these sample rooms. Mm-hmm. We want the new product every week on our site and our store. And we 
it's just not enough time for people to get it right, right? It's and the, and so it's it's really frustrating. Like I, that's definitely that something that I saw change a lot. Where in the beginning the samples were better, and usually by the second fitting we'd be like good to move to production, and that changed. Right? Suddenly it was like three, four, five samples. Yeah. Sometimes we're giving it up, right? But the other thing that I saw happen is that uh, we cut corners more because we were like, well. It's still not great, but it's, I mean, literally we'd be in the room, like either we take it as is or we don't get it at all. Yeah. And somehow taking it as is was always the better option. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's, that's the thing. It's like, well, this needs to go. I can't, I mean, I can't tell you how many times this has happened. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like, I'm it's on, like a regular thing. Yeah, you and know? I'm on the, and I'm on like the, the, the tech end and fit end and design end. And it's, it's like, well, you know, so for me, I'm looking at patterns too. And these patterns are terrible. Um, like oh, the patterns yeah. you, you're getting now from the factories versus what you used to see in pattern rooms. Um, and, um, and you know, you're, you're looking at this and you're like, no, this, this can't go to production. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, and be, and the buyers and everyone will be like, no, you know what? No, it's fine because we have to go to production because we have to make these deadlines. And it's like, well, do you have to on this one? Go- I mean, really, who? what's going to happen if you don't make this deadline with this one garment? There's not enough clothes out there. Like, you can't. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. But it is like, I could say, like, you get stuck in this situation yeah. where, like, someone's losing their shit because yeah. that was going to be, like, the hero image on the website. Yeah. Or they were going to send this out for marketing. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's, it's the so ad, foolish. The ad sample. The ad sample has to <laughs> spin. Right, right. And so, like, it always, anytime, honestly, anytime we were like, oh, we'll just take it as is on a, on a style, it was because someone in, like, in a meeting, someone in leadership had said, like, listen, we need this for photography. Yeah. This is going to be the. This is going to be in the marketing shoot, and you're like stressing so badly about it. God, I remember I had this. My worst job ever was actually for like a feminist startup, and one of the things we made was a lot of suiting, and we did not have the best partner for that suiting. It was a fast fashion uh, brand who just happened to be making suits for us, and suiting is like very skilled. Um, it really should be made in a factory where that's what they make, yeah. not in a factory where they also made dresses <laughs> and skirts and blouses, which is what we were doing. That's everybody. Um, <laughs> and I remember we, someone that we had this like creative director who was a monster. I could tell stories about her all the time. She had absolutely no experience in in fashion whatsoever. So she had a lot of like delusions about how it works that I, I'm going to be honest, I had when I started my career. And then you learn how it really goes, right? So like you start to learn what things are too good to be true and what we can't afford and, you know, like that right. kind of thing. So she wanted to do a white suit with this vendor. She picked a fabric swatch from a little tiny, oh, happens all the time, right? Picked it from a little tiny square. <laughs> and like, I swear to God, if you and I were sitting at the same table right now, Jessica, if I held up the swatch of fabric, you would see my face through it. And I was like, I don't know about this. And she's like, no, it's so nice. And I was like, okay, well then it needs to be fully lined. And you want this for summer, right? And she's like, yeah, we can't fully line it. It'll be hot. Let's just... 
line it with shorts. <laughs> I'm like in a suit. Okay. Yeah, let's do this. So the f- we had to skip uh, TOP approval yeah. because it was going to be late, classic, yeah. and because uh, we wanted it on a timeline <laughs> that was unrealistic. So the full production comes, and we used this uh, third-party warehouse. We didn't even use our own. And, like, I didn't have a lot of contact with the warehouse people at all because they didn't even work for our company. And so when you heard from one, it was pretty, pretty big deal. And this person from the warehouse emailed me. I remember her name was Nancy. And she said, I don't like to get involved in things like this, but I just have to show you these pictures of this suit because I would be embarrassed to spend $88 to buy either of these pieces. And I think you might want to do something about it. And first off, it had like weird little tiny booty short lining that you could totally see through. But even worse, the fabric was so sheer, you could see these rat nests (gasps) of thread inside them (laughs) from like seams and uncut threads. And then I was like, okay, send me. Send me some units from the order because the creative director was not believing how bad these were. And I had someone in the office put them on and they couldn't even get their foot through the leg hole. Oh, no. It was such a nightmare. And you know what happened to those suits? They all got thrown out. Yeah, garbage. Garbage. Because (laughs) nobody on on our side like had the sense to make a smart decision. And then we were rushing things, so we never got to see a sample to approve before it went into production. We didn't see a TOP, which is top of production, for when it was actually made, which is another point where we could have caught it and said, hey, before you ship this all the way over via air, we need – this needs fixed, right? So it arrives with us. We've received it. Now the options are to ship it all the way back to China and get it fixed, which is going to be expensive and take a really long time. By the time that happens, remember, this is a white suit. It's going to be fall, right? And it's going to be expensive because then we're going to air it back to us. It makes no sense. (laughs) It makes no sense. So what happened is we sent it back to the vendor at their domestic office here in the United States and they threw it out. Oh, and that God. is disgusting. You know, like a thousand And it happens all trash. the time. All the That's time. The everywhere I've worked. It happens yeah. all the time. And the amount of, and, and it either gets thrown out or you, the, you also have like the amount of just left inventory sitting in the, in the factories, like in the vendors, like uh-huh. places is insane. Like, I mean, there's just. It's just crazy. I mean, what what goes through because you're people are just pushing things through. There's so much that gets pushed through that goes through, which should never be made, honestly, to begin with. <laughs> I know, and it's like, well, like, like guys, the sales section at the store at any big chain you go to is pretty big these days. It's huge. And it's full of things that weren't great because maybe they didn't fit that well, well or the fabric wasn't great. That's a but good that's, point. That, that's the better yeah. stuff, okay? Because this, <laughs> there's stuff, like every company is damaging stuff out regularly, having it destroyed yeah. or selling it off to jobbers because it is completely unwearable. So if you've ever gone and tried on something in the sales section and you're like, oh my God, I can't move my arm in this. I want to assure you that wasn't the worst mistake that retailer made. No. 
<laughs> it was that's the sad part. And you know, the worst part is a lot of those mistakes, a lot of those clearance sections, those are like those are like cal pre-calculated errors in um especially in fast fashion because the the grade, like they're they're formulaic grades, like the way they size things. It's so formulaic because it's plugged in. And so mm-hmm. um they don't necessarily work for every garment. And so by the time you get, you'll see, like, you'll notice also on clearance sections, you usually have, like, you you rarely see, you don't see, like, a bunch of mediums. (laughs) Because that's, that's your base size. You don't really see them on the clearance. You'll see, you'll really see, like, the XLs, the extra smalls. Like, you'll see, like, the ones where, where, especially once that grades out, like, um, because, the grade was not done well so because it was plugged in Ugh. and they don't account. I mean, I've gone into a lot of patterns where, like, you see it happen. But because, like, the production so fast and the cost, you're selling these garments for such a low cost that it doesn't make mm-hmm. sense for somebody to go into every single grade, like every single pattern, every single grade, and kind of fix it per pattern. And so if it's going to, like, if it's going to mess up in the great. <laughs> like if that pattern, <laughs> if that seam is not going to true to the other seam or match the other seam once it grades down or up, which you'll notice like the further out it sizes, if that's not going to um, do that, does it, is that a good, are you paying enough for that garment? Is that garment worth enough to get somebody to go in and really like, you know, look at that, that, pattern and look at that grade and make sure that's going to be okay no you're not because these garments are coming Mm -hmm. back with a cost of like five dollars so i mean what are you you're not paying you're you know everyone's trying to get this the lowest common denominator on these you know on these garments and so that's why you know you're you're not getting you're not getting like the most amazing quality but i think we've been trained now to accept you know poor quality but really Mm -hmm. low cost um Mm -hmm. and we're we you know i think when i say we i'm bulking in a lot of people because i don't really accept it but (laughs) i know there's a lot of other people that don't want to accept it but the bulk of of people I think through marketing and you know are conditioned to think quantity over quality now when it comes to apparel totally well and I also think like when we get things and they don't fit us which is pretty frequent so frequent we (laughs) we blame ourselves right fortunately diet culture has been a great support mechanism Mm -hmm. for fast fashion because Rather than saying, I think this garment was made stupidly, <laughs> we're saying, oh, it's it's me. Like, if my arms weren't so big, I could bend my arm in the shirt. No. Yeah. Let me tell you, if that shirt fits you everywhere else, you better be able to move your arms. <laughs> but these are real things. Like, yeah. I, at one of my jobs, we didn't really make a lot of our own clothing, but we bought it. And so we would get all the samples in. And we, would, we had, like, dressing rooms right in our office where we'd have everyone try them on. And we'd always do this thing called drive the car. Where you'd like put your arms out <laughs> yeah. as if you're the steering wheel and move yeah. them. And tr- let me tell you, a lot of styles would fail that test. Yes. That you wouldn't even be able to comfortably drive a car in one. Mm-hmm. And like that 
that's not because the people in my office had weird arms or strange shoulders or were too tall or too short or their torso was too small or whatever. It was because they were poorly made. But like when you're buying a dress for $10 landed, that means shipped and duties and everything. You got to realize you're getting a piece of garbage. Like on, even on the buying side, I would get in my head, like I would go buy stuff for myself and be like, I'm the problem. My boobs (laughs) weren't so big. This would look great. But I realize now, like, no, I've been in meetings where we've we've shrugged our shoulders and said, "Well, it'll fit someone." Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> right? I mean, that's that's a common <laughs> phrase. Oh, I it's think it's the worst. It's the <laughs> it's worst. But terrible. we've all we've all been there. Like all of us who've worked in the industry have seen this play out. Yeah. Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room, all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at Dylan Page Life and Style. 
Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at Thumbprint Detroit. High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at highenergyvintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. So, okay, well, let's transition into, like, let's t- we're here to talk about waste, and we're specifically here to talk about the textile recycling system, yeah. which I just want to start, I mean, you're going to tell us this anyway, but <laughs> it's not what you think it is. It's not, you know, like, I think even when I, even a few years ago, I really believe that textile recycling really existed in a real and large scale way. Mm-hmm. Because I would see that phrase out there, I would see it on donation bins, I would see it on trucks, I would read it in industry publications. And in my mind, it was like, okay, the textile recycler picks up all the clothes and other textiles (laughs) and drives them to a factory, they dump them in one end of the factory, all the stuff happens in between, steam comes out, turbines turn, I don't know. It's like Willy Wonka for textiles. Right. (laughs) And what comes out the other end is like a really nice bolt of fabric, right? We The fact is that that's just not true. So the term textile recycling system is pretty misleading. So why don't, why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? So I, I got interested in this. I mean, again, I grew up with this like from back, from way back, um, from when it was, you know, again, before like there was dead the terms. And I think that that's the most misleading part is we have these terms that that mm-hmm. we've transitioned into marketing phrases. And when you actually totally. define them, like when you define the word conscious, like what does that mean? <laughs> but we've bastardized it. And when you define... Oh, we've ruined so many so things. Many, but, and when you define the word sustainable and recycled and, you know, all of these things, what does that actually mean? And I think people just say these words, but they don't actually think about the definitions. And um, mm-hmm. 
And I think that's where the, the, um, the whole textile recycling, it's so funny. I wish I'm like, Oh wait, we can't see each other, but I'm doing air quotes, but I think totally. <laughs> I do an awful lot of air quotes. So I like that. <laughs> um, all of these things, like it, it's almost like it's, a, it reminds me of the time when I stopped saying when people would be like, what do you do? And I had stopped. There was one point in time I stopped calling myself a fashion designer because I felt like that phrase had been totally mutated. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. and I was like, no, no, I don't just, you know, like, um, I can't, I can't call myself a fashion designer because it's the meaning has changed and that I do more than that. Um, <laughs> um, so I feel like sustainability, it's the same thing. I hate the word sustainable now. Um, and I hate the word conscious because I feel like to be conscious, you have to actually know what you're talking about. And I don't think people do. <laughs> um, well, I mean, they don't make it easy. Like in the defense of people who don't know, it is because it is intentionally misleading. It is intentionally. Exactly. It's intentionally misleading. And so I do have, so I started, I have been interested in this from a very young age. I did start um, working with it actually when I started teaching in it. So that that was a big goal mm. of mine was education. I feel as though you cannot be a consumer, a good a good sustainable conscious consumer unless you're educated, right? So um mm -hmm. so I started teaching um uh reconstruction classes from ages literally like you know six years old through up through like adult, like all the way. So I've taught every age and I, I've been teaching, you know, I taught um, reconstruction classes um, and how to kind of, you know, um, adapt your clothing, mend all of it. And then I actually started working within te I, I had opportunities to start working within textile recycling um, and this was very interesting to me because it's a very kind of, I would say, I don't want to say secretive, but it's a very <laughs> kind of, um, closed off environment. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's different elements to it. You have, um, the warehouses, um, where, what you were talking about, when you drop your clothes in a bin, where do they go? Right. When you drop your clothes at Salvation Army or Goodwill, where do they go? And I think a lot of people think, okay, do they stay at Goodwill? Do they just sit at, how many clothes do you think to get dropped at Goodwill? A ton. They do not stay at Goodwill. No. They do not, not, Goodwill cannot accommodate all of those clothes. Salvation Army cannot accommodate all of those clothes. Um, the boxes, a lot of those boxes actually have been taken away from places because um, people will throw trash in them. People, homeless people will throw, um, and these are, these are actually very factual, real reasons why a lot of these boxes get removed. Um, um, they will throw just, you know, anything in them. Um, and so, so the boxes collect more than just clothes. <laughs> also, you don't know what people are giving away. They, they, they will put everything in the bag and oh my God, donate it. <laughs> um, and the more fast fashion we've made, the more clothes we've made and the more, um, weaker, I don't want to say trash textiles because I hate using the word trash with textile. Cause I really, you know, honestly, textile is recyclable, but the more, the weaker fabrics that we've made, um, it's much more difficult to kind of, uh, I guess, even 
reconstruct those those uh, those clothes and recycle them and do something with them, alter them, um, and um, so those those donations even become harder to kind of put on the second market, um, and um, but th- that's what's getting do- you're getting a lot of that donated. So where did that where do those go? So then there are these warehouses and they're called rag houses. Um, and the reason they're called rag houses is because a lot of the, the donation back in the day, they used to turn a lot of the stuff into rags. Now, nowadays, can you turn a lot of this stuff into rags? No, because of the textile. <laughs> right. Um, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. I mean, what are you going to, are you going to turn like, you know, th- these hundred percent poly like chiffon, yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do with this stuff? Like you can't. And so, but there's a, and there's more clothing waste than there's been ever. Mm-hmm. And so you have all of these things, you have all these clothes and, um, they're going into these rag houses and these rag houses are accumulating, um, clo- clothing beyond what you can imagine. Um, so, um, a warehouse, um, you know, that, that I was like, that I was involved with, I mean, they were getting up to 100, about, if not over, uh, de- I mean, it was minimum 100,000 pounds a day wow. of clothing. Wow. And I mean, I, to get an image of what that looks like, it's like, I could I could show you a photo, I mean, but to get an image of what that looks like, it's crazy. It's just, it's an insane amount of clothes. And, and, um, and this is all waste. I mean, this is all what people don't want. This is all, you know, coming from like Goodwills and, you know, all these different places from all over and um, personal donation. I mean, everything, this is just what people don't want. And, um, or are, aren't wearing, whatever. And within this, this is not, this has to be sorted. And then there's something called sorting, there's something called grading. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of different rag houses. And the rag house business is an interesting one. <laughs> because it's, again, it's just kind of like the fashion industry. There's a lot of smoke and mirrors. Totally. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seems like really based on like what I know and conversation you and I have had, that really the textile or recycling co- industry is really more of like a logistics industry. Like they lo- move yes. stuff around. Right. It's a logistics industry and it's a business just like any other business. Right. It's not like some altruistic environmental no. organization. But it implies it. Like I've seen the bins. Like I, I remember when we lived in Philly, we would drive across the bridge to go to this Target in New Jersey and they had those bins that were that were owned and maintained by a for-profit textile recycling company and there were all kinds of like copy and about you know like sustainability or something bullshit and saving the planet and there was literally like a green drawing of the earth on it like it was all have that right right so anyone like if you didn't know 
you wouldn't know. You'd be like, wow, I just did the greatest thing today. I am like a hero. I took a whole bunch yeah. of clothes and put them in that <laughs> bin in the Target parking lot. Uh-huh. I basically saved the earth in one day. Yes. Right. You think you say exactly. It's just like the, the PET fabrics where it's like, I saved a dolphin today. I bought some recycled poly. Great. Like, no, that's not, that's not the case. You do not save the, the ocean and you didn't say, I mean, it's, but there, there is, the thing is, it's, you can't really blame the consumer because again, it's not transparent and it's just like the fashion industry. It's just, there's no transparency. And, um, and it's a lot of marketing, but rag houses are not necessarily like those are, those are kind of like, you know, they're not marketing themselves. They are the, they are kind of like the third party, like they're the back end mm-hmm. behind mm-hmm. a lot of, a lot of like, um, resale companies. And now you're starting to see a lot of like the back end of resale companies. And, and there's been data, um, companies pop up now to, um, facilitate resale and, you know, because everyone sees the market value in it. And so it's starting to become again, like a consumer business. So we're starting to present it like consumption, um, which is interesting. It's mm-hmm. an interesting, um, uh, it's interesting if you watch it, but so the rag houses are kind of catering to that as well. And, um, like they're picking up on it and, but it's interesting. The grading and sorting process is really interesting because, um, they're dealing with a lot of volume. So just like you have inventory in a department store where there's so much inventory and everyone Mm -hmm. knows that that is not, a great problem to have or not a sustainable (laughs) um, model, business model. They have a lot of inventory. So what do you do with all of this inventory? Goodwill can't house it. So that's why they're giving it to them. It has to go somewhere. So the rag houses will sell it to other countries. And um, the way that's done, and they're getting this, they're, they're accumulating these clothes for nothing, for like, for cents, like very, you know, I mean, so the value, like they're, they're not paying, they're paying barely anything for these clothes. Um, and it's done by pounds and then they're selling it by the pounds as well, by bales, pounds, um, to other countries. And the way it gets graded and sorted is, um, it gets graded and sorted by country and, and it gets um, great, great and sorted by country as well as category and quality. Okay. And so um, the countries that get the better <laughs> clothes, I wanna, and when you define it, it's so interesting to kind of, for me, it's interesting to kind of like categorize clothes this way because, again, all textile is really a recyclable material like it's really like Mm -hmm. not a you know not a throwaway material (laughs) material it's never going to like grow back into the earth so um so the better clothes are the ones that don't have you know holes that are that are more like new you get a lot of new clothes actually does Um, not surprise (laughs) me yeah a lot of new clothes you'll actually get like um, clothes from you'll see like clothes that have come in from like companies um, oh. you'll see, like brands you'll see clothes that come in and like bulk you know but you'll see a lot of new clothes that um as well with tags still on them um 
And so the clothes that really like aren't dirty, the clothes that or that don't seem dirty, you know, that don't have like obvious marks on them. Um, so the cleaner, like less dirty, no holes, those clothes, the ones that seem, you know, like that, those usually get graded and sorted to go to the better countries or the like the South American um, countries um, like Chile and you know the the countries that are I guess I if you were to rate country again I feel terrible no I know I mean like real talk what I know of the grading is that it's like really fucked up and it's racist and it's xenophobic and it's it's bad it's I bad. mean, I will say, I will say I have, so my daughter is adopted and I'm, I'm gonna, and this is, you're probably like, where's she going with this? <laughs> um, <laughs> my daughter is adopted. And when I was, I did a ton of research when we were adopting and, um, and, and there was the same system with the adoption process what? of a child. Yes. People are there terrible. Were, there were there was there were um, a lot of a lot of agencies that had discounted rates based and uh, this sounds oh. so terrible discount not the agency that we adopted from but discounted rates based on uh, race of child and so what this had reminded me of <laughs> was wow. similar because it's like it's like you know I mean <laughs> based on the country. I mean, this is how they get graded. The clothes get, you know, graded and sorted. And this is not, I mean, this is not like a one-off in, in a, in a warehouse. It's, it's like, um, a lot, most of the warehouses are (laughs) graded and sorted by, um, country. And so, and, and so it kind of always reminded me of, of when I was, when, when we were going through the adoption process and I was like, Oh my God, I can't believe they do this. Oh God. People are so terrible. I mean, that doesn't surprise me it's actually. Terrible. No, it doesn't. It, it, it shouldn't have surprised me, but it, it always does. Cause you want things to be better. I know. Um, I know. <laughs> I know. So you were telling me, okay, so like, just to recap here, uh, yeah. Like South America is the more highly rated clothing, right? They get the more highly ri- like graded Rate, okay. clothes, and then the less good clothes they go to Africa, <laughs> yes. right? That's what you were telling yeah, me. Yeah, so Africa is 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 like more on the that's like the lowest. So so I know, um, and I've heard. I remember you you had. Um, I remember listening to an episode you did too, where you had, um, I think, the Or organization. Yes, the Or Foundation. Or company. Yeah, foundation. Yeah, yeah. I was like, "What's the the?" Yeah, and I remember that one, and it was really interesting for me to listen to that because I was like, "Oh, oh, I know, I know why." <laughs> um, because the the clothing that gets sent is they're not gonna they're never gonna get those you know those highly graded. <laughs> bales like um and and you know i remember when when um you were speaking to them about you know how there's trash mixed into the bales and there's you know but the amount of that comes in when you see the amount that comes into these warehouses it's insane and so to grade and sort it when you're walking on the floor i mean you just see there's clothes everywhere there's i mean there's trash there's literal trash like 
all over. And the, the employees in the warehouses are not. So I think a lot of people just assume, you know, employees in um, other countries, like in factories in other countries, those are the employees that aren't making money. So if you're, you know, those are the employees that don't, aren't making living wages and not, mm-hmm. you know, doing that. But you still in America, you still have issues in America too with that. And so when you have people that are making low wages um, in warehouses and factories in America that are also making low wages and doing this hard work Mm -hmm. and physical work, I mean, you shouldn't have this problem. Like you shouldn't, they should be paid like compensated a living wage. They should have benefits just like everybody else. Um, I mean, benefits is like, I feel like now considered, I mean, that should be for the, that's now only for like the wealthy. No, (laughs) I mean, it's true. It's it's so true. You know, like I, (laughs) I mean, it shouldn't be that way. Right. Uh, It should not be that way. Right. But it is that way. It is that way. It is that way. So, you know, that's a great thing to talk about because once again, this is an industry that has this like really froofy, like desirable sounding name, textile recycling, right? It sounds great. Um, And I asked you because I... I have friends who sell vintage and some of them source from these rag houses. I know the one that you worked for did not allow this, but, you know, they have resellers licenses so they can go into these warehouses and pick. And they're not allowed to take photos or videos and they're not allowed to bring anyone with them. (laughs) And I asked because I'd always wondered. I was like, I guess it's just to keep things mysterious. But you were like, no, "No, things go on there that no one should see. Yeah, so they're, they 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 usually you can't take photos and video because of um, a lot of times the way the warehouses are set up, the amount of clothes. A lot of times the working conditions are not um, up to code. I mean, you've got you know in terms of fire <laughs> hazards. <laughs> I mean, this doesn't um, surprise me. <laughs> health and safety. <laughs> um, the ones that do allow people in. Um, are more well-known, I guess, like in thrift and vintage. And I feel like this started when you started hearing the buzzwords marketing for sustainability Mm -hmm. and being green and doing all these things. But if you look in the back of all of of these warehouses, there are dumpsters. And in the dumpsters, it's not just the trash. There are clothes in the dumpsters. And so you are not 100% green and sustainable and <laughs> and um you know and so depending on how you promote yourself um so i think i think the the photos the video there's there's a lot of things that happen i mean you have these these warehouses also have you have machinery mm-hmm. um you have bailing machines you have forklifts you have you have all these all this equipment and then um all of your employees the, your warehouse employees you know, do not have benefits. <laughs> nope. There are accidents that happen um, with equipment. Nobody has benefits. <laughs> um, there are things that happen, you know, and um, and none of them are, are you don't have, um, you know, they, they almost work like factories. Like when you go into, you know, factories where you have, people working for low wages and, um, you know, and, and doing hard work. And, um, 
you can't take pictures when you go into the factories. It's the same type of reasoning. And, and, and in the factories too, same thing, fire hazards, health and safety concerns, um, no, I will say no, I mean, no heat, no air conditioning sometimes like, Mm -hmm. and so the work conditions are not great, but then you're getting people that are going to pick and they're getting some t-shirts that, you know, people are grading and sorting for very, you know, for nothing and that the warehouse has received for nothing. And then these, and then you've got this, this vintage and thrift market that is take that are taking these these garments and then they're upselling them for astronomical prices sometimes. And I'm not saying everybody, but you do have this, you know, and again, this has changed too. This is where you've seen a change as well within vintage and thrift, especially, I, I mean, the biggest one is the t-shirt market. But oh my gosh, you, you and I went it. off on that. We were talking before. I know. <laughs> you've seen it change so much where you see, you'll see t-shirts like the, the, they're from the nineties and God forbid it's from the nineties, but and nineties fashion, because it trends in, you'll see t-shirt from the nineties where just because it's from the nineties, somebody's selling it for $200 and it came from a rag house. And when you think about what's behind that, yeah, just because somebody's sorting and grading it, maybe it's not the factory worker in the fast fashion warehouse who's sewing it, cutting and sewing it mm-hmm. for a low wage, but you have somebody, it's the same premise. Right. Somebody is still sorting and grading it for a low wage in not great work condition, work conditions. And, um, and then this person is now, you know, selling it at, you know, and marketing it like it was received from somewhere where it was created, you know, from something special. And I think there needs to be some kind of transparency a little, or a little bit more transparency, um, within that, um, that it doesn't just exist like outside this bubble of, you know, we're in America or, you know, and everything is fine here. And, but if, you know, if it's made in, you know, China or Vietnam, you know, then it's, it could be bad. It could be like, you know, it could be child labor, but here everything's fine. It's not true. This exists all over Mm -hmm. the industry. Oh, absolutely. And it's not, that is sustainability. Isn't just, Oh, it's, it's, resale so mm-hmm. it's sustainable mm-hmm. no sustainability is across the board it is if you're going to be a sustainable company have sustainable practices have a sustainable product have you know be a sustainable like just create a sustainable brand um and i think i think that but that sustainable, how sustainable practices is a big thing, especially when it comes to how you, you know, how the, the clothes are acquired. Because um, when they do get sent to the other countries, I think nobody actually knows what happens to them. And I think um, the thing is, those countries, they don't necessarily need or want what they're getting. And they don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing. It's not like they're shopping off a rack. <laughs> they're just receiving bulk bales. Yeah. They don't know what's in them. Right. That's crazy. And so, so you have this, it's it, again, it's a lot of information because you have this, it's a whole chain effect. Right. So, 
um, it affects so many people in in so many different ways. It really does. You know, and it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. I mean, obviously, you know, there's that whole it's it I don't know it's a saying a catchphrase I'm not really sure that there's no ethical consumption under uh capitalism and you know yeah. like yes for sure and like we have to make a lot of difficult decisions but I do think that there are better decisions that we can make but we have to know the facts and unfortunately so much stuff is hidden from us like we should be able to assume that when we buy something secondhand, that there isn't some sort of exploitation or abuse involved in it. And unfortunately, that's not always a guarantee unless maybe you're buying it like peer to peer. Like someone's Correct. like, this is my dress. I don't want it anymore. Do you want it? That's probably a pretty safe bet. But, you know, there are plenty of vintage sellers out there and resellers who are very ethical, who are maybe getting their stuff, mm -hmm. you know, at like, uh, estate sales and places like right. that. But then there are plenty of other people who are getting them from these kinds of facilities. And I'm not faulting them for that because most likely they don't know what's going on there. Either, yeah, they don't right? know. Exactly. And I think, I think that's important to call out because I definitely get a lot of messages on a regular basis that are extremely, and I mean like violently anti-reseller. Um, it's really shocking to me how much <laughs> antipathy some people have towards resellers. Um, antipathy that they should really be targeting, using to target, you know, the fast fashion industry or Jeff Bezos or something like that. But instead, they're taking it out on these, like, people who are just trying to make a living, right? And I do, that's why I want to underscore that, yes, there is, there is exploitation and abuse happening in these textile recycling rag houses, but I guarantee that the resellers have no idea about it. In fact, I want to say it was about a year ago, um, a friend of mine, Jade, Fashion Without Trashin', uh, she's like a big Poshmark entrepreneur. She went to one of these rag houses in the South, not in Texas where we live, but like, I don't know, it was like, let's just say it was in Georgia. I have no idea. Yeah. Uh, and this was like a rag house because there are a lot of sketchy people running these. I, yeah. I'm, the more I learn, <laughs> yeah. the more I learn, right? And basically this rag house was trying to do this thing where they were putting together boxes that were more allegedly like designer focused for resellers who were selling on like Poshmark or you know one of those other platforms not vintage not vintage clothing or anything like that and not these like t-shirt people and whatnot that you and I are so yeah. confused by anyway so so she went down because they were like you know you're kind of you're an influencer in this space we want you to come and be a part of this and basically they brought in all of these people who were high profile like Poshmarkers and were like it was kind of fucked up. They were basically hiring them to work for free for a week in exchange for like oh, a yeah. box or two of clothing. But on top yeah. of that, there were people working there who weren't being paid either and weren't even going to get boxes of clothing. And the whole thing was just a big old scam from beginning mm -hmm. to end. And uh, I'm sure she still has these saved in her stories. But I... I was like, wait, what? That happens? But then I've had many conversations since then... I've had a very similar experience. Oh, really? So, yes. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. It's so sketchy. And I don't I don't want to ever make, like, broad generalizations. Like, everybody who runs these facilities 
is a bad person who's sketchy and trying to get free work out of people. But I'm just going to say I hear a lot of these stories. It's very bottom line oriented. Again, it's a it's become a business. And so the and I think this is where it's this is don't laugh at me, but I made some notes before I was going to talk to you because I was like, "Oh my gosh, there's so much to say on this topic." Um, <laughs> I got laughing. I really appreciate but, it. But my notes are basically um almost like a map of like what where to hit um, kind of like the the roadmap of what has what it what sustainability started as and w- what you know where it is going now um, because I think the thing is um, or resale even like you can bulk resale and sustainability um, because I think when when everyone kind of saw the high dollar. Um, amount in resale and sustainability. And it's really interesting to, to track it right now because of the businesses that are that are being built within it and the way that people are adapting to it. Um, they're turning it into this. They're turning it into, it's, it's like what happened when people saw um, opportunity in the fashion industry for and social media to up consumption. And so people are seeing opportunity in resale now to up consumption. And so they are trying to, um, they're trying to basically, um, you know, um, What's the word I'm looking for? But they're trying, they're trying to capitalize on that um, by upping the consumption of resale, and they're not doing it in the most, and not everybody, but you, the especially the ones with bigger businesses and platforms are doing it not necessarily in the most ethical ways possible. So it's almost mimicking what happened in fast fashion, but in resale. Totally. Totally. And it's interesting to watch. Like, it's terrible, but interesting to see happen because we're basically saying, because the the, the actual root of sustainability is less consumption. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And I think you touched on something really important there, which is that, Listen, we're always we're all looking for an easy fix. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. like that's just human nature. Change is really difficult, and I know that many people have said, "Oh, I'm just going to shop secondhand now, but I'm going to shop just as much as I was when I wasn't." Yeah. <laughs> and that's not great either. Is it better? Sure. Sure. Fine. Yes, it is better. But is it the best option? Probably not, because if you're shopping like you were before, but you're shopping online like secondhand all the time, think about all those packages and the packaging materials and stuff <laughs> going around via truck and airplane, all these things like it's better. Sure. But it's not like it's not exponentially better, especially when you hear that in some of these cases, there's there's in this whole different supply chain, there's all of this exploitation occurring so much and what and what you're doing with that is you're you're still you're um you've got the exploitation and then you're also devaluing um 
clothing at the same time by overconsuming. So you're devaluing the product. And so it's sad because you've got exploited labor. It's like when you hear of exploited labor, but you're still buying this product that is worth like $5. The whole system is so broken because um, it's like for what? For something you're going to wear and and once and, and then throw away. If we start putting value back into clothes, then we wouldn't exploit the labor so much because we'd value the labor behind it. Totally. Um, and so I think that the it's and that's where education comes in. I think if if there's more education on you know what is the what are textiles? <laughs> what is the fabric that makes these clothes? What is you know how should things fit me? How should you know? So I think a lot of it stems from that. How should things be made? Um, because people don't I don't think people understand the process, and I don't think they they realize that that is valuable, and people should be paid mm-hmm. you know like under ten dollars an hour to. <laughs> to you know make your clothes or pick and sort your clothes like they shouldn't totally totally I mean and this is happening every day all around the world yeah If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of April, St. Evans is supporting United Farm Workers Foundation, mobilizing farm workers and their organizations across the country to advocate for more equitable policies. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evans. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom-and-pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul, and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? 
Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns. Handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at Republica underscore Unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicwear, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnicwear in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnicwear recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnicwear offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. The Pewter Thimble is a curated secondhand shop based out of Rome, Italy. Owner Desiree Marie Townley has a background in costuming and makeup for dance and opera and focuses on dressing for the character you want to be in the world. Curated collections are dropped in a story sale and always have a specialized theme, like the color palette of Starry Night, the film classic Casablanca, and the children's novel The Secret Garden. Desiree works with local artisans, and pieces are rescued from markets and rehabilitated and resold with worldwide shipping. The Pewter Thimble is a collection of pieces that will have eternal style from the eternal city. Discover more on Instagram at The Pewter Thimble. I know the United States isn't the only country where these kinds of textile recycling warehouses exist. And that just really speaks to the sheer no, volume. All over yeah, the world. it's it's pretty yeah. wild to think for you to say like, okay, the place where you worked had a hundred thousand pounds coming in a week. Is that what you're saying? No, a day. A day. Oh God. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. So a day. That's one place. And I bet even in the city where this warehouse was, there were other warehouses too. Yes. And actually, like, I think the, the most in the country. So there's tons of them and they get tons of fabric and they're all in around like the same places. And when you drive by them, too, you just see fabric, like clothing, like spilling out, mm. like everywhere. And um, and it's and again, you have the ones that allow the pickers. Mm-hmm. And then you have the ones that don't. Um, oh, and and the ones that get the, by the way, the ones that get the vintage and the really good stuff. So the ones that get vintage are um, the Western countries. 
Wow, <laughs> makes sense. That's a good question. Too, I knew, <laughs> I knew that some of that stuff would even be bailed off and sold domestically. And yes, I domestic as well as like the Western countries and like you know um, any the you know the more the more wealthy. <laughs> totally, totally. So I worked for a retailer um, that still exists, and they. One of the, they don't do anything for sustainability. They don't even try to greenwash it very hard, to be honest. (laughs) One way that they do sort of like present themselves as like being sustainable is that they have always sold some secondhand or upcycled clothing in their stores um, and on their website. And they themselves buy all of their clothing that they sell, the secondhand clothing they sell from these rag houses by the bale. So it'll be like, I want to, I mm. want five bales of flannel shirts, yeah. right? Like that kind of thing. So they're, and a bale is usually a hundred pounds. Yeah. So they're getting bales and bales yeah. of this. But so it's important to, you know, point out here that off this, the retailer I worked for is not the only one out there doing this. But what they all do have in common is that they will frame these collections of secondhand or upcycle clothing as being ethical and sustainable, as proof yes. of sustainability, right? <laughs> but ultimately, it's not sustainable if the people who were sorting those clothes, bailing them, working in those facilities we're not paid a living wage. Perhaps we're not even being paid legally because they were, uh-huh. you know, b- being like victimized via wage theft, possibly because of their immigration status. That happens Correct. a lot in the, on the West Coast in the rag houses. And, and in the South. And there you go. <laughs> probably everywhere in this country. Um, and <laughs> yeah. so, like, these companies will lean on this, like, yeah, but look at our whole collection of, like, upcycled mm-hmm. flannel shirts. That's sustainable. That's us caring. And it's like, is it, though? Because, I mean, well, mm-hmm. it's not. Spoiler. Because, like, if if they could sell all this uh, secondhand upcycled stuff, why is the rest of their stuff, like, shitty $5 dresses where people weren't paid a living wage or and or there was, like, uh, you know, like, actual human slavery involved, right? But yeah. beyond that, like... Even this secondhand clothing, because I'm going to tell you, those retailers want those clothes as cheap as possible. So they're also squeezing the rag houses on pricing, which means it has a trickle down effect to the employees working there. Exactly. And, And that's the thing. It's all bottom line. It's always been that way. And I think I think that's that's the thing with business is it is. Um, once it becomes business, once people see, you know, the, the, the opportunity to make, to make money with it, it, the sustainability, that word, again, it's just a word. It becomes a marketing tool. It doesn't become, um, an actual moral value. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. It's totally true. Yeah. It's just a marketing tool and it becomes, this is what's going to get us more customers. Um, how can we sell more? We just want to sell more. We want to, you know, compete with this person. We want to undercut that person. Um, and we want to sell quantity. Mm-hmm. And what, because whenever you're dealing with any place that has a lot of inventory, it's going to be quantity driven. Mm-hmm. This is why I looked at uh, Thread Up a lot when I was, there, I would always look at thread ups model, and I was like, "What? How? Oh. Um, what? And how? And yeah. <laughs> why?" I was telling um, you that like none of it adds up because 
It doesn't. Uh, which I <laughs> suspected. I have several friends, including myself, who are really obsessed mm-hmm. with like untangling thread up because we know (laughs) all of us work in the industry and know what it takes to like sort and photograph and organize like the logistics of all of this and it doesn't make sense with the pricing they're offered they're offering and the volume they have coming in but then I started to realize when you send your clothes to thread up they pay you like pennies on the dollar so they're all they're getting your clothes almost for free Basically, like they pay Which the is shipping, what the houses are right? Doing. Right, yeah. <laughs> and then you know they don't even have to sell a lot of your clothing to make some profit right. off of what you sent, because they're going to pay you so little that most of the cost of launching product and selling it for them is going to be the sorting, the measuring, the copy, the organizing it on the site, the yeah. photography, all of that. And when I looked, I mean. Like, ThreadUp keeps this information on lockdown. You can't find anything out there except for all of their kooky greenwashing reports. But <laughs> I decided one day, like, as, as I want to do, I went, I was going to read all the Glassdoor reviews for ThreadUp. And uh, they were bad. It's a terrible place <laughs> to work. And it's because the company actually hasn't made any profit yet. They're just bringing in VC yeah. funding more and more. Uh, the metrics around productivity are extreme much like we hear about like an amazon warehouse like thread up operates pretty similarly there's not a lot of opportunity for development and growth uh they don't pay very well uh it sucks it sucks working at thread up sucks and it's interesting to me because you know they they tout sustainability constantly and like how they're saving the planet but they use fast fashion style tactics to lure people in Correct. now and, and bring them back in. Now, I still am going to tell you, I would rather see you shop at ThreadUp than say shop at Anthropology. But you have to recognize what's going on under the covers there and like don't let it give you a license to overconsume. I right. have ordered something from ThreadUp one time, one time ever. And I get emails from ThreadUp at least once a day, every day, right, to come back. Here's a discount code. They have a lot of the, like, what I consider to be the hallmarks of fast fashion, actually, in terms of, like, behavior, like, epic selection and a confusing array of promos and discounts like I never exactly understand how much anything is on there and they right. are constantly trying to bring you in with new stuff they an w- abundance of inventory yes <laughs> yes like they're taking a page out of the fast fashion play- playbook exactly and yes they you know all of their warehouses are here in the United States right now so they are required to pay a certain minimum wage and whatnot but much like working in an amazon warehouse it's not a great job there is a lot of like overworking and i would say like abusive unsavory conditions yeah i was gonna say you can skirt a lot of that and um in those in in the warehouses you can kind of go you can kind of bypass um a lot of those things i mean i you know, I worked without heat all winter. I actually, I actually had to do a lot of work from home because, um, health wise, I just couldn't. Um, well, a lot but, of warehouses um, are not yeah. climate controlled here in Texas where not, we live. I mean, no, and, and it's, and it, and our 
you have you really honestly it's ridiculous because you have um to be. it was 100 degrees today here in yes, austin exactly. yeah yeah and it's it's may yeah so so you know like i think that these are all good things to call it but like technically it's not illegal to not have air conditioning in your warehouse or yeah. heat but like is or that heat. a place where you would want yeah. someone to work and unfortunately no. that's what you're going to see happening in an environment like thread up or any of these other rag houses or larger secondhand companies because they're in a game that is maximizing profit when there's Mm -hmm. not a lot of profit to be had in the first place because there's so many logistics involved. Oh, the logistics are a nightmare. I mean, the, the worst, I think, I think the worst is inventory and washing. Right. And the wash factor, I think a lot of people don't talk about. The (laughs) the washing factor is, I think, the hardest, um, one of the hardest ones to overcome as like, especially if as anyone holding a lot of inventory, very difficult problem to overcome. And as well, like if you're in a second market, Mm-hmm. company i mean honestly if you're just even in a first um because again the factories now are so are producing so much that everyone should just be washing everything um but in the in the second because you don't know like what is happening with these textiles um but <laughs> the the second market you do need washing i mean if you saw how clothes are coming in like you need washing mm-hmm. but then if you're trying to be sustainable how do you do this sustainably and you've got all these different textiles i mean it's not like you can just throw everything in a washer mm-hmm. um you've got to figure out the logistics on that and then you've got again if you do not and this goes back to if you do not provide the right working conditions and climate conditions and building conditions you will get bug issues (laughs) this all sounds this all sounds really like terrible but i mean there was a point i mean i got a rash i mean (laughs) there is there is you have to provide the right um facilities and the right and so the logistical stuff on this is um is so um it's a lot to structure and there's a, and again because all of these companies like like we were just saying with thread up um all these companies have very limited transparency and so you you don't know their logistics <laughs> you don't know how this inventory is being like held how it's being you know packaged delivered like you don't mm-hmm. really know you have no idea you don't know the washing process you don't know um like you don't know fully and i think um and i think a lot of that is probably that was probably the hardest part to it's a hard part to navigate is controlling the inventory and then like the sanitization like all of that stuff um and then once it goes to you know i don't know um, I know, like, you know, once when pickers are allowed into warehouses and stuff, I mean, then they, a lot of that cost when they resell, they sanitize. Like, they, mm-hmm. hope, hopefully, I mean, the ones I know do, but, but hopefully people are sanitizing um, and, <laughs> and doing something to the clothes when they get them because they're getting them in, in bales or if they're getting them from rag houses. I mean, they need to, <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> 
but yeah, I mean, a lot of that part of the process and a lot of the, the resellers I know, a lot of that is, is a big, you know, one of probably one of the bigger logistical issues um, that you face. And so when you imagine like warehouses that have, that are basically gigantic thrift stores, uh, <laughs> it's so hard. Um, and it's, it's crazy. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's just, it's like, there are a lot of problems here, right? But like, I think where a lot of it begins is kind of like, it almost goes back to the beginning of our conversation and how the industry has changed. And one way in which it has changed remarkably during our careers and everyone, we're not that old. Okay. <laughs> You know, I don't need feeling it. But I, yeah, yeah, right. no, we're not. Uh, <laughs> and one thing that has changed is the quality of these garments. And even I think yeah. we have, and when I say we, I mean like the all of us, we, not specifically you and me, but we have become, I don't want to say comfortable, but at least very accepting of what's okay quality, what's okay fit, and how long a garment should live in our closets. I mean, I... I've been out with people, n- not recently, because, like, it's been a few years now, right? But where it would be, like, someone would spill a drink on you or your dress would rip, and it would be, like, well, whatever. I got it at, you know, I got it at Forever yeah. 21. There's the sales section at Urban Outfitters. It doesn't matter, right? Like, it, I only expected to get a few wears out of it. But, like, that shouldn't be okay. And so what's happening is no. we have a lot of clothing that was not made to be worn more than a few times in the first place. But at the yeah. same time, ironically, perhaps, will be on this planet for centuries because it's fully plastic. Uh, we've, we're moving through it really fast because it doesn't stand up to us. And there's nowhere for it to go. There's nowhere. There's no – I can't even think of a safe zone. There isn't. There isn't, <laughs> right? So, so what happens is we donate it. Maybe it still seems pretty wearable to us. Like we've been really conscious about it. It doesn't have any holes or it's not super pilly. Like someone's going to get some wear out of it. We like to think, right? We donate it or we throw it in these textile recycling bins. What happens is it ultimately ends up at these recycling facilities where it's just like this 100,000 pounds every day. At one place. I mean, that's the volume, right? Because we're moving through these clothes so fast because they don't have life. They don't fit us great. We don't want to make a commitment to them either because they're not great. And we're also being encouraged to buy more and more constantly anyway. So we have this huge volume of clothing moving from us to these facilities where then it's got to go somewhere else. And so another reason that they're trying to keep costs as low as possible and therefore exploiting people is that they have such a high volume to move around and that costs a lot of money, right? So the, if the volume weren't so high, maybe, I mean, this is giving some benefit of the doubt, maybe these facilities wouldn't be like cutting every penny they could because they wouldn't be trucking around quite as much or having quite as much to bail up every day or sort and grade, all that stuff. And it's depressing when you think about it that people here, like, like, let's just like track the journey of these clothes, right? So they were made most likely in another country, although they could have been made here in LA as well. And the people who made them worked in terrible conditions and made no money off of it, right? Lived in poverty. Yeah. 
Then it was sold to us and it was disappointing, right? It didn't fit great or it didn't <laughs> yeah. hold up. Or you found yourself having to staple yourself into it at work one day. And so mm-hmm. you you were done with it pretty fast. It barely got anywhere. And so you donated it and no one bought it at the thrift store or perhaps most likely so much stuff came into the thrift store that day or week. Yeah, it didn't even make it. It didn't even make it. It just (laughs) immediately got bailed off and sent off to these facilities where then people sorted it out and most likely worked in a warehouse where there was no heat or air conditioning. They were paid little to nothing, no benefits. So more people are disappointed, suffering, having a terrible time because of this clothing. Then it gets shipped overseas. Let's say it was like the bottom grade and it goes to Africa. And we already know that story where it's way more clothes than anyone could need. No one wants it. It ends up like in an open landfill or out in the ocean or God knows where. If it was a slightly higher grade, maybe it'll go to Chile where it'll end up in a pile in the desert. Like it's... It's so sad. It's so sad. It's so sad. Right? And these are like things... You know, when I started working on Clothes Horse, like there would be days where I was like, I am so distraught about all of this yeah. that I hate myself for working in this industry. I yeah. hate myself for liking clothes. I don't even want to look at clothes. I'm going to become a nudist. I'm full of rage. Like I just <laughs> had all the feelings every day. Yeah. And I think that that's a process that we all go through. Like sometimes you just need to hear the bad story and and you have to hear the truth that textile recycling isn't what we think it is. That cl- yeah. the clothes we donate don't go where we think they're going. Like we need to hear these truths and we need to like grieve the truth. And then we need to make decisions and changes based on what we've learned. Because I agree. this system is not going to change without all of us no, getting involved. It's just going to, it's just going to keep um, getting worse in terms of like, you know, because I mean, the change comes from individuals, mm-hmm. um, and because as as corporations, corporations are driven to succeed, and and businesses are driven to succeed by by bottom line and capital, and you know they want to make money, mm-hmm. and so um, and I the thing for me is clothing. So when I say it's driven by individuals, clothing for me, I, and I think I'm a creative person, I'm a designer, I'm a you know, an artist, but, but I also think my mind also works in a business sense too. So I'm interesting because I think both ways, but for me, clothing is so personal to me. Mm-hmm. I grew up with it. I grew up in it. Like I grew up in, just in, te- you know, within that textiles environment, I grew up learning how to mend and how to So, and it's been in my life, my entire life. It is literally the only thing I have that makes me feel magic. Mm -hmm. And so as much shit as I see in this industry that is depressing and terrible, my mind will always go back to how can I make it magical? Like, how can I do that? Because it, that's, that's what I saw when I was younger. That's what made me want to do this. And it's, and, and I'll keep wanting to do that. Mm -hmm. And so as much as I've seen it transition to this, like, you know, terrible place, um, it, it did, there used to be magic in clothes and there still is, and there's magic in textiles. It's just, 
again, it's a tool and people have used that tool in a bad way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that there are, there are people that are still doing good with it. We, we've just, the platform is more open and available to the, <laughs> to the people with, you know, um, you know, with bigger, like, you know, VC funds and, <laughs> um, and people that, that may not have the best intentions and, um, and a lot of people that actually have no experience in apparel, which is really interesting. Um, <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's true. Yeah. So, um, so I think that there's, so it's funny cause I feel like by now I, I always tell myself, I'm like, if I haven't quit this by now, I am not leaving this industry ever probably because I love clothes that much because I've seen some shit. Um, but I think like it's worth kind of fighting for. And I think that, that, I mean, I believe that clothing still has value. And I think that's the, that's the opportunity is teaching, just educating in it and teaching, showing people. Yeah, totally. Totally. And I feel like I, I agree. I, definitely hit that point where I lost I lost my love for clothing that I've always had but then it came back and it's like stronger than ever like there is there is this magic that comes into play when everything you buy is super deliberate when everything you wear yes you chose with a lot of care exactly it's like I can open my closet and look at everything in there and there's nothing in there that I want to part with. But that wasn't always the case. Like when I was working in fast fashion, right. <laughs> I had to have a new outfit constantly. Like no one understands that pressure unless they've worked in that industry. Yeah. But you have to have like new clothes all the time. And you end up with a lot of stuff that you really don't give a shit about. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And uh, it feels good to look at my closet and be like, oh, I actually like love all the stuff that I have. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is, I mean, if you ask anybody, most people will wear less than half of their closet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Most people don't even wear more than, you know, yeah. uh, 30% of their clothes. Um, and I mean, they just, they consume to consume and it's marketing and it's, you know, there's so many reasons why they do that. Right. And I think, um, and I, I, you bring it up on your, your podcast all the time about how, you know, everything's inflated right now. All the prices are going up on everything, but clothing is just getting cheaper. I know, which I know. Is, which is so <laughs> accurate. Um, it's just, it's insane how accurate that is. Um, and it's baffling. It makes no sense. And what's funnier is that there's more technology going into a to textiles. So why are those textiles getting cheaper when there's actually more development in the textile? Um, so that doesn't make sense. It's like, why is Coca-Cola more expensive than water? It, it makes yeah, sense. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so it's a, it's a weird, uh, it's, it's a weird world with apparel. And I, and I think a lot of that has to do with Again, transparency. Uh, the fashion industry's always been like that. That's one thing that has not changed. There has never been transparency in fashion. <laughs> it has always been a smoke and mirrors industry, um, and it has always it has always been like a slow to change industry in a sense. And so when it does change, it kind of changes um, slower than others, but it. Um, 
you know, it doesn't, it doesn't like keep, it, it kind of doesn't keep its pace the same as other industries. It, it kind of like lives in its own world. Um, and it's, it's run by like, you know, its own, its own like little system. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so yeah, but I, 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 I think, I think there's still, I, I will always think there's still magic in it. Mm-hmm. I just think that there's a lot of noise surrounding it there right is. now. Totally. Yeah. And I just, um, I just think it's like up to all of us to help to cancel out some of that noise. Yeah. And, and, and that's kind of, and all, and that's the thing. I think if you get, um, I think if you get like angry and focus on it and that kind of thing, then you, you take away, if you're a creative, like you take away from what you could be doing to kind of distract from it. And so I always say, this is the teacher in me now. I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I always think like focus on, you know, focus on like what you bring to the table and, and just mm-hmm. get it out there. And then you can kind of supersede it. Um, cause that's what'll kind of squash it. <laughs> totally. Um, and like create your own, you know, create an ethical environment around you and, and, and manufacture ethically and, and make something that would, that's quality and value oriented and, you know, and fits well. And, and then somebody doesn't have to buy, um, you know, like 500 of the same garment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, and go and, and kind of go through those channels and, and educate people on, on what you're doing. That's like the best thing you can do is just like show, show people your process, Mm -hmm. show people what you're doing. Totally. Oh God. I wish everyone would do that. (laughs) Then we would know, we would know what thread up's up to. I know. Seriously. (laughs) Instead they're like, here's some more like big statistics. Like if I, can I just tell you like everywhere I've worked for the past few years or every client I've had just everywhere wants to talk to me about thread up and like they're, they're like ludicrous like decks. They're always sharing about like, this is our sustainability or report or the future resale and all this stuff. And I'm like, Oh my God, where do we even start? Do they put those out themselves? Those decks are, are crazy. Yeah, they do it themselves, but then they, they do. I mean, listen, the, (laughs) the way that the, like, the media interacts with fashion and retail gets more ridiculous every year. And like, I feel like every week I find, I find out some other thing about that relationship that like demoralizes me every time. Like, for example, you know, those like 30 under 30 lists that Forbes always publishes. Oh, I hate those. Yeah, People hate those. pay to be on that list. Oh yeah. yeah. Right. Like it's yeah. not like you just get chosen because you're doing a great job. You pay a ton of money and it's sort of like a recurring fee. Yeah. You pay to get coverage. Right. Well, like anytime I'm trying to like debunk something that's greenwashing, I have to sift through like 20 pages <laughs> of blog posts and articles that are word for word regurgitations of a press release by this brand oh, yeah. or that company. And thread up is the same way where there's this whole like, web of thread up information out there but it all comes from thread up it's none of it is like no one's doing like any investigative reporting about thread up they're just taking these dumb reports they put out which are full of foolishness and like regurgitating yeah. them so it's like no one no one's asking like guys do you think thread up seems too good to be true no one's asking that even though like 
any of us who know, who work in the industry, have worked in any way with secondhand or larger scale logistics that are like single skew, which is what Thread Up yeah. is, right? <laughs> Meaning there's one of each thing. Any of us who have had to deal with that are like, oh, oh, God, like I, th- something doesn't add up, right? Like I worked in rental, which is strangely enough a single skew business too, because every garment has its own life, right? Like where it goes, who had it, that kind of thing. And it's really expensive to pull it off. You need, it's a totally different way of housing product. It's a totally different way of receiving it and keep tracking of it. We deal with laundry and stuff. And so you need, a huge facility and you need a ton of employees and it's hard to be i mean none of the rental services are profitable either i wouldn't expect no they're not none of them none of them make none of them make money it's all vc Mm -hmm. it's all like again it's smoke and mirrors like this is totally totally it's all like it's all a game like like i feel like a lot of these like large VC, like VC funded companies that are really hypey, like like a lot of like Rent the Runway, for example, or a lot of rental yep. brands or Thread Up, or I could go on and on, are kind of like a weird Ponzi scheme or something. Yeah. Or like an Enron situation where like they've never actually made any profit. And so they're kind of a house of cards because rather than like like the organic way in which someone would grow a business is they would start small. And over time, they would expand. And so profitability would be part of the model from day one. These are companies that say, okay, actually, we need $100 million to get started. We're not going to be profitable for 10 or 20 years. But in the interim, (laughs) we're also going to keep growing. And that's when it kind of falls apart, right? Like, I mean, that's what happened with WeWork, you know? It happened with everybody. Everybody. And, you you know, what's really interesting is you see it at the beginning where they are like, it's like we have an idea and we're young and we're new and we're fresh and and it becomes a trend. And so they get and they, so they just dump money. Mm-hmm. And then there's no but there's no it's just an idea but there's there's one thing lacking which is experience mm-hmm. in that industry or just experience period. Life experience anything. I mean, yeah. And so it's just money and an idea and and that mo- but that money isn't like VC money I guess back when you know back like 10 20 like 20 years ago it's like it's like enough money to you know feed like three small countries and they're just they the spend on that money and the burn rate on that money is huge and and then they're just going back for more and more and but there's no profitability and they're not accounting for it and they're just um spending and spending without actually thinking it through and again it's that lack of experience within that actual you know field or industry or I can't even tell you how many people have started like especially a lot of the the apparel companies that have never worked in apparel. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I've worked with um, some of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have helped a lot of them, um, and it's it's crazy what they think they need at the beginning and where they think they can go with it, and it it none of it makes sense. Um, and I think it's what we're trained to think. Mm-hmm. Um, based on what what's ha- what's been happening, um, you know, and everyone thinks, well, I need this much money to start, and I need to do this, and I need to create this many clothes, and I'm always like, no, 
we work with one thing, um, do that really well, get to know it, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, get to learn the process. I mean, this is great. It's just, you know, I think everyone's just used to seeing, you know, oh, wait, no, I need to make like 20 garments to start and I need to do this and I need this much money for that. And um, it's, it's this false narrative. It totally is. It totally is. I think that like this is how we lose sight of ethics and of what it all really means in the first place. Exactly. Which is why the industry is so different now. <laughs> totally. Totally. We live, totally. So we've been talking for about two hours now and I do have COVID right now. So I need to go to bed. Uh, yeah. I could definitely talk all night. So I wanted to know, do you have any final thoughts or wisdom or like the big takeaway that you want everybody to get from this conversation? I think my biggest takeaway is, um, again, it just lies with education. I think the best thing you could do is educate, try to get as much. And as you said, it takes a lot of sifting through the bullshit. It's work. Um, It's totally work. It is. It's work, but it's worth it. It And, And the best thing you could do for yourself is not just, and not just like the Google education, but also, you know, learn to like, sew a button, um, or just like the simple things. If you learn to kind of, um, if you learn just like basic, you know, take your garment apart, cut a garment apart, see how it was put together. And that'll kind of get, let you like help you get to know your garments, which will kind of give you an idea of the value of your garments. It'll also show you how some of those garments were really badly put together and how fast they were put together. (laughs) Um, And it'll give you a better, you know, so there's multiple ways you can educate yourself about your clothes and kind of bring value back into them. Mm -hmm. And that'll also help educate you on brands and what they're doing. And you'll feel more, I think that helps you take ownership more of um, your choices and um, it helps you kind of control your decision making process and and not leave it up to the brands to kind of make your decisions for you totally and that's kind of my takeaway I love it I love it (laughs) that's great advice and I think the best thing we can do is like whenever we do the sifting figure out the truth about stuff tell other people save them some of the emotional labor of doing that work and then maybe they can do some of the work for you too Exactly. And it'll also help you with your fit. Yes. FYI. Totally. (laughs) Totally. It will. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jessica. This was so much fun. Thank you. I want to thank Jessica again for spending two hours with me. That's just how it goes sometimes. And you know what? We're going to have to have her back again to talk more about the wasteful practices happening in the fashion industry right now. Like, I think we could talk for two more hours about sample waste alone. You can learn more about Jessica at jessytex.com and on Instagram at jessytex underscore. I'll share that info in the show notes for you. Okay, one last thing. As I mentioned at the top of this episode, July marks Clothes Horse's two-year anniversary. I can't believe I've been doing this dang thing for two years. It went so fast. (laughs) 
I have a special episode planned to commemorate this auspicious occasion. I'm going to share my own path from fast fashion to clothes horse, my own journey, if you will. I receive a lot of requests for that, so here you go. And guess what? I want to hear more about your journey, too. What made you start to care more about sustainability, particularly in regards to the things you wear? What changes were the most difficult? What were the easiest? How do you think slow fashion could be more accessible to others? And how do you find yourself making changes on a regular basis? Do you have any tips for others? I can't wait to hear from all of you. But you're probably asking, what is an audio essay? It's a recording that you make using your phone or your computer. You email it to me at amanda at closehorse.world and I will edit and mix it and add it to this special episode. I will not accept written essays for this. I recommend that you write it out, then record it. It's okay if you make a mistake while you're recording. Just say that part again and keep talking. I'll edit it out when I put it in the episode. As a person who talks into a microphone every week now, I promise that's the best and least frustrating way for you to go about it. Please record in a quiet room away from fans, air conditioners, guitars, bus stops, etc. The deadline for this project is July 1st, so you have a few weeks to get this done. Your recording should be anywhere from 3 to 10 minutes long. The personal is the political. Remember, that's one of our pillars around here. And I can't wait to hear your stories. And with that, thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't like what you're hearing, go listen to something else. Seriously, life is way too short. If you'd like to support my work here on Close Horse, you can learn more at patreon.com slash podcast. Thanks, as always, to my other half, Dustin Travis White, who recently celebrated a birthday. We went to the largest flea market in Texas, and it was, it was large. Thanks to him for our music and audio support and just continuous all kinds of technical support. Bye.